Good evening, everyone. You're watching Dangerous Thoughts here on Unsafe Space. I'm Carter Laren, your host. It should be a fun show tonight. Richard Patz already started off with a super chat saying nothing smart to say yet. Just trying to show the love. Thank you, Richard. He actually did have something smart to say because before then, he already started with a pun. He said, finally, the Fed finds a way to get its rocks off. Uh, yes, <laughs> we will talk about the Fed today. It's hard to say that the show is going to be fun and talk about the Fed, but here's here's the plan. Um, this show involves not only the Federal Reserve, but also rocket ships and asteroids and uh, old dictionaries and boobs. So if you cannot wrap your head around the Federal Reserve uh, and understand it with all of this stuff around, like sandwiched around it um there's no hope for you this is your this is your opportunity oops sorry there's a buzzing i don't know if you heard this is your opportunity to uh <laughs> to learn about the fed okay yeah on the agenda today uh like i said inflation we're gonna talk about quote inflation i'm putting that in in uh air quotes inflation and planetary defense where those are going to go together then i'm going to answer a question from discord about boob jobs um, and then uh, I'm going to quickly talk about uh, the dropesg.com thing that I mentioned last week. So uh, that's the plan today. Please make sure that you are subscribed um, on YouTube or Utreon or Rumble or Odyssey or wherever you're watching. Um, and it does really help. You know, we don't have NASA's budget uh, and we're not the Federal Reserve. We can't print money. So... Uh, we rely on your donations. This show relies on your donations. All the shows rely on your donations. Um, so please head over to unsafespace.com slash donate. Uh, you can support us on Subscribestar through PayPal. Um, I think you can actually even do it on YouTube if you want to. So uh, please do that and also share the content. Uh, if there's stuff that you like, please share it. Someone uh, just the other day mentioned something on YouTube about uh, uh, a show that I had forgotten that uh was a dangerous thought show that helps explain i don't even remember what it explained to them like oh now i understand this thing a lot of the shows here are evergreen content we mix in topical stuff so that people want to pay attention uh <laughs> you know based on the news but a lot of the content is actually pretty evergreen so uh if you're wanting to hear about something wanting to learn about something we, we might have already had some content on it let us know and we'll find it or maybe we'll just make new content so with all that said, I'll take a sip from my Ladder with Crowder mug, which I shouldn't be advertising. I should be advertising our grenade bug mug, which is behind me on the shelf, which you get if you subscribe to this channel at 25 bucks and above. You get a grenade mug, which is super cool. I'm drinking out of another show's mug because that's the kind of horrible marketer I am. All right, let's talk about inflation in air quotes. A couple things I want to do here. I want to... I want to help you understand what's happening to um, the economy right now and what's about to happen to the economy. And and we're going to talk about how the usurpation of language, the, the commandeering of language or the abolition of language um, muddies waters, um, makes it difficult to think about things, um, and leads to, in crisis, uh, leads to crises and leads to um, problems actually dealing with crises. Perhaps some of that's intentional. You never know. So... Um, before we talk about the economy, though, before we talk about inflation in air quotes, uh, 
This is the this is the bread, the first bread slice of bread for the sandwich. Before we talk about that, we're going to talk about spaceships. Um, because being an engineer my entire career, uh, I get I get super. Look, I know NASA shouldn't be funded. It's not a proper function of the federal government in in many ways. I guess if you think the government should do defense, maybe some defense stuff should happen. But NASA is pretty inefficient and horrible. Um, however. I just you got to put all that aside when you're a nerd and be like, this is cool. This thing is cool. Rocket ships are still really cool. Um, on Monday, NASA performed the first uh, of what they've called a planetary defense test. Actually, SpaceX uh, launched the rocket. Uh, but NASA, I think, through contractors that they hired, uh, <laughs> built the uh, the device, which is called a DART, a double asteroid redirection test. This was this rocket. And... Um, Monday, during narrative dissonance on Monday, so I had to watch it afterwards. During narrative dissonance on Monday, uh, here's what here's what Dart did. Uh, there is a there's an asteroid flying around called Didymos. It is Didymos is like a half on half a mile long, roughly. It's it travels between I don't know, probably somewhere between ten thousand and twenty thousand miles an hour. I think the the speed changes depending on where it is in orbit. But there's this asteroid really far away called Didios. And around the asteroid that's a half a mile long is another asteroid uh, called Dimorphos. And that one, we measure things in America. For those of you who aren't from America, we measure things in terms of football. So Dimorphos is a football stadium size, is what they were saying. It's football stadium size. So a football stadium size asteroid orbiting this other asteroid, both far away, no threat to Earth um, because of how far away they are and their trajectories. So um, how do they even know? When you look far away, you can only see like one point of light. You can't even see the orbiting one. So how do they know there's even an orbiting one there? Um, well, one of the ways that they detect this is they just they can see the, the light from the asteroid, which is obviously just reflection from sunlight. Um, and there's a periodic dimming that happens. And this is how they this is how they do it for stars as well. This is how they tell planets around stars. There's this periodic dimming, which is when the thing that's orbiting around it like passes between the asteroid and Earth, right? And it dims, and it happens periodically, so uh, they can measure the period of the orbit. Blah blah blah. So their test, what they wanted to do was say, okay, can we can we send this rocket? Can we send the Dart? Um, we're gonna point it towards this two asteroids that we can't even resolve from Earth, um, this point of light. Uh, and they, this was, it was NASA and JPL, um, the Jet Propulsion Lab. I've had the opportunity to work with Jet Propulsion Lab people a little bit in like, like 25 years ago. They're not dumb. There's like really smart people at JPL. So they had some kind of course correcting software going that was like the rocket itself was maneuvering and, and figuring out where to go and uh up until the last two minutes or so it was still course correcting and at the very end it it uh it stopped course correcting but the, the goal was to have this rocket slam into dimorphos the football stadium size thing orbiting the asteroid and and why they want to see if they can change the trajectory uh they can change the orbit of that little one how will they know well if they change the orbit the period will change so the the frequency which with which they see the dimming when they're looking at Didi, Did, didymos uh that frequency will change 
I think they can't tell yet. They have to wait. Uh, maybe, I don't know, might even be months before they can kind of tell the drift. And that will tell them, did we move, did we move this thing a little bit in its orbit? All very cool if you're an engineer and a nerd. I, I think it's super exciting. So, um, so yeah, but on the front of this DART, the spacecraft, uh, which, by the way, um, the other method we use other than comparing things to footballs and football stadiums and football fields, uh, apparently we measure things in terms of vending machines, golf carts, and refrigerators. I guess the rocket was one of those three or the average of vending machines, golf carts, and refrigerator size. That's what we were told. So on the front of this vending machine, uh, there's a camera. And so you can see, you can go online and you can watch the rocket approach. You watch the one point of light and then it resolves into, you can finally see the other asteroid around it, Dimorphos. It's aiming for Dimorphos and you see it go all the way in and right up until the end, you, you know, you get super, super close and you see the end and then like, you get like partial image because the the, uh, the the rocket impacts uh, Demorphos and and blows up. And the rocket itself is traveling like fourteen thousand miles an hour, hitting this thing, traveling several you know tens of at least ten thousand miles an hour somewhere around there. So, bam, you get this impact, and now they're going to measure and see if it worked. So it worked. They did it hit it, so that worked. Why am I bringing all this crap up? Well, uh, at JPL and that the contractor's building this stuff in SpaceX. Um, you know, there's uh, there's a lot of thinking going on, right? I know that sounds like a trite thing to say, but this isn't, they're not, they're not using a lot of lived experience, <laughs> right? They're not like, I feel like it's this. There's a lot of rational thinking and lots of use of concepts going on. And the precision of concepts matters a lot to them. They need to know what they're talking about, you know, linear velocity or angular velocity. Or what, like, they need to know concepts, concepts that I probably don't even know, uh, even though I am an engineer. I'm sure there's special astrophysics concepts that I'm not even aware of. Uh, so they need to know. And an example is a kind of high school, a high school physics example or junior high school even physics example is momentum, right? They need to know momentum uh, is your mass times your velocity. Like, that's just a concept. They know that. They know what momentum is. They know what velocity is. They know what mass is. Those are concepts they have to have in their in their head. They can't even begin to plan a mission without that basic junior high school momentum is, is mass times velocity. They can't even, they can't do that. They need that concept. Um, and again, you know, your, your feelings about momentum don't matter. Your, the lived experience of velocity is not relevant. Like the concepts need to be clear. And obviously these concepts, concepts generally um, enable thinking, right? Um, the language that we use for something like velocity or momentum, that language is just a label. The language itself is arbitrary, right? I mean, different languages label that different. I don't know what momentum is in Chinese, but it's probably not momentum. Um, but the concept still exists, right? So they, the labels just, a label onto a concept in your brain. And that concept, you need the label, you need the concept, you need that language in order to be able to think. You can't think in concepts, and you have to think in concepts because your brain, you can only handle like roughly seven concepts at once in your crow, in your, in your working memory. And so 
which I think is the rationale behind seven digit phone numbers originally. Um, you, that's about as much as you can kind of work with at one time. So, you know, the world is very complex. You need to be able to break things into concepts so that you can you can manage that world. You can't really think. You certainly could not put, uh, you could, couldn't hit an asteroid from Earth without uh, lots of different complex concepts that you can hold in, in your head and, and that subsume other concepts. So it's required for thinking. We see this in, and this is not, you know, I'm not saying anything that you haven't heard. In 1984, for example, the you know the book club books we read early on, uh, you know, they had this concept of newspeak. My daughter just read it recently, and she just brought it up again. Uh, she's like, it sounds like newspeak. Um, right, the concept of, of newspeak, which is, you know, one of the goals in this book was to try and um, change language, actually eradicate words that they didn't want people to have concepts for, and... Um, and change the language in order to change how people think. Um, I'll just I'll read a quote from 1984. There's a, a lexicologist character uh, named Syme, I think is his name, and he he he's talking about his latest. He's he's writing the Newspeak Dictionary, and he's talking about his work on the Newspeak Dictionary, and he says by 2050, earlier probably. All real knowledge of old speak will have disappeared. The whole literature of the past will have been destroyed. Chaucer, Shakespeare, Milton, Byron, they'll exist only in new speak versions. Not merely changed into something different, but actually contradictory of what they used to be. Even the literature of the party will change. Even the slogans will change. How could you have a slogan like freedom is slavery when the concept of freedom has been abolished? The whole climate of thought will be different. In fact, there will be no thought as we understand it. Now, orthodoxy means not thinking, not needing to think. Orthodoxy is unconsciousness. So again, without concepts, you can't think about something. So when, when the language is changed and a concept is uh, abandoned, eradicated, combined with something else, um, you know, changed in some way. Uh, we've, we've talked about the changing definition of racism, that the, the, the intent is to change the way you think about this thing. Um, and it will over time. That's what it does, because you have to think in terms of concepts and need labels for those concepts. All right, so let's go back to NASA and JPL for a second. Um, and actually, I want to, before we keep going, um, I, we have another super chat from Richard Petz, and I don't want him to uh, have to wait. So, he says, I assume they're using fossil fuel to launch these rockets. Shouldn't they switch to something more sustainable? Maybe a giant catapult. Excellent idea. I think we should pass it on to JPL, Richard. Um, solar powered. <laughs> uh, yeah, there's no way for the non-physicist type people, there's no way to exit the Earth's atmosphere. Um, there's no like cool way to do that you basically have to throw stuff out your butt. Like, like, you have to build something that throws stuff at the earth and you go the other direction. That's the only way to do it. Um, so usually that's burning some kind of fuel. I mean, it's always burning some kind of fuel uh, and you're throwing the, the, the gases at the earth. Okay, so, so back to this NASA JPL thing. Imagine, imagine you're, you're at JPL and um, someone proposes just dropping the concept of velocity, 
right? Velocity is speed in a direction for those of you who are unclear about that. What if we just drop the concept of velocity? velocity. We're not going to talk about it. We still have to talk about momentum because obviously our goal in changing the orbit of this thing is to impart momentum to it. That's what you're trying to do. You're trying to hit this this asteroid with uh, the refrigerator golf cart size thing. You're trying to impart momentum to it to get it to, to move. So um, we still have to talk about momentum and our goal is still to change the momentum of this thing, the angular momentum of it. But um, we're not allowed to talk about velocity at all at all in this in these let's just stop let's just not have velocity as a concept um so when momentum changes i guess we assume it's mass i don't know what we i don't know what we do um but we're just going to we're not going to talk about velocity we're going to treat momentum as kind of just mass and there's some difference differences we don't know what they we're not we have a word for the velocity part now if you propose this uh you'd probably get fired from JPL if you were serious People would think you are crazy, rightly, um, and uh, obviously this would be, I mean, you wouldn't have science, you wouldn't have engineering and technology if you could do this kind of stuff. You would fail. Uh, you would absolutely fail in your mission to hit the asteroid, um, and planetary defense would not take the step forward that it has, and uh, someday we'd all die, uh, just like the movie Armageddon. So, oh wait, no, they stopped it in Armageddon. Was it Deep Impact where it actually hit? Wasn't there, wasn't there one where the asteroid actually hit? I don't remember. Anyway, you would fail in your mission. It would be catastrophic, uh, and you would be unable to do, to do anything. And that's how it is when you're dealing with the real world. When you're dealing with science and technology, the results of failure, the results of making a stupid epistemological error, um, typically present themselves relatively quickly, even in the timeline of, uh, you know, compared to some other stuff we're going to talk about, even in the time of a multi-year or even multi-decade mission, uh, that's pretty quick. You see the result eventually. Um, you build the bridge and, by, and ignore some critical concepts and just or just redefine them or you pretend 2 plus 2 is 5 or whatever. It falls down really quickly. You can't – you know right away. Uh, unfortunately, when you're mucking with other things, sometimes you don't notice right away. Some of us notice right away and point it out, but the but the – uh, the cost of making that error is much more subtle. It can be blamed on other things, and no one seems to notice. Uh, and it takes a while to manifest. So now let's talk about the economy. That's your space. That's all we can get for space today. Sorry. Uh, maybe we should just do a show talking about space all the time. But um, that would be a different show. Um, Richard Petz also, he's, Richard Petz is, he's down with the Super Jets tonight. Thank you, Richard. He says, Ballistics 101. Yes, Ballistics 101. Uh, actually, if you're, um, if you are a uh, firearms guy, especially if you're um, uh, into precision rifle, you learn all about this kind of stuff, right? You... Uh, you've got ballistic charts, and the weight of the bullet matters, and uh, actually also the spin matters, but the weight of the bullet matters, and the muzzle velocity matters, and all this kind of stuff matters, and you're calculating uh, ballistics. Um, the difference between a bullet and a rocket, obviously, is the bullet has one single event where it, stuff gets shoved backwards uh, into your shoulder. Um, 
and then the projectile moves forward, and a rocket is continuously shoving stuff backwards. Okay, wind speed, Greg says. Uh, you don't worry about wind speed with ballistic tables, but you do worry about wind speed when you're pressing, when you're pulling the trigger, absolutely. But you do worry about it with the momentum of the bullet. So wind, wind does affect how much the bullet will move left or right or whatever, but, but not the drop back to the earth so much. Uh, so you're right about that. Okay, enough about guns, enough about rockets. Now we get to talk about the economy, which I know sometimes people think is boring. It's not boring. It's very important. It affects you if you care about, you know, eating. The economy impacts you. Uh, okay. Was it last week? I think it was the 21st. Um, the Fed announced that it had raised the target funds rate. Raised, they just say, colloquially, they'll say the Fed raised rates. We'll get into what all that means later. Um, they said that the Fed raised rates. Um, and this was in order to fight inflation. We're going to put that in quotes. Fight inflation. That was the goal of raising rates, or fighting inflation. Um, and... In a press conference on the 21st, Chairman Jerome Powell announced this. They, they raised the fund. They raised what's called the uh, funds rate, the target for the funds rate by three quarters of a point. We'll get. We're going to get into what that means in a minute. But so that's what they did. And Chairman Powell uh, stood up. They're they're typically um, the Fed chairmen are typically really conservative in their language. They because the market reacts. Um, the market is extremely sensitive to nuance and innuendo and things they say. So Fed, Fed chairmen tend to be pretty careful in their in their word choice, in their language, and and what they communicate publicly. Uh, I don't. I'm not an expert on on the Federal Reserve or Fed chairman. From what I can tell, a lot of people on Wall Street seem to think that Jerome is a little bit too loose lipped uh, and should talk less. Uh, than, than he is, but nevertheless, uh, Fed chairmen tend to be uh, pretty careful with their language. So during this press conference, one of the things he said during the Q&A, I'm just going to read this here, and I'll explain it in, in a minute. He says, so what we've seen is inflation has, our expectation has been that we would begin to see inflation come down. So they're expecting inflation to come down after what they've already done, because they already raised the rates. Largely because of supply-side healing, by now we would have thought that we have seen some kind of that. So it's kind of some kind of like effect on their previous raising of rates. And then he talks about where we are right now um, in terms of inflation, which we will also talk about, uh, and where we are in the economy. And then he says, uh, after talking about where we are now, he says, that's not where we expected or wanted to be. He blames Ukraine for stuff. Uh, obviously, there's the, the oh, COVID, COVID caused problems. Um, and of course, there's people there asking questions about like, well, is the Fed doing too much? Um, one of the Axios reporters is worried. He, uh, I forget it was a male or female. It doesn't matter. Zur said, a number of commentators have come into the view, including over at the World Bank, this is like a, ooh, this expert disagrees, that simultaneous global tightening, which means um, raising of the rates, global tightening around the world is 
creates a risk of global recession that's worse than is necessary to bring inflation down. So this person's like, hey, are you even, this is too much. So the Fed chairman's like, I don't know, it hasn't come down. We thought it would come down based on what we've done. So we got to keep doing more because it hasn't come down yet. Um, probably it's Ukraine because Russia and the guy's like, I think you're doing too much. Okay. Lots of talk about inflation. Inflation is a key word here. Inflation is a key word. So maybe, maybe we should know what this, it's like using the word velocity when you're talking about hitting an asteroid. It's a key word. If you don't know what the hell velocity means and you're like, we need more velocity, <laughs> like our magnitude of our velocity is too small. We need to increase it. Like you're like, well, what are you talking about? I don't know what that is. We don't have a, such a concept, right? So um, you need to know what, what is inflation? What are you talking about? It's, a, it's, it's, it's not, Everyone's talking about it. Biden saying it's there's not inflation or it's not a big deal and people saying it's too high. Fed chairman's like, we thought it would come down by now. We're going to fix it. We're fighting inflation. Okay. This is the part where only a certain class of people are going to like this, but that's okay. Here you are. This is the new century dictionary. You know what century they're talking about in this dictionary? Not this one. This is the new century. This is from 1927. This is a 1927 dictionary. They were so excited. We're, we're almost as far along in this century as they were in their century when they released this book. All right, we're going to read inflation. By the way, uh, it's related to the word inflate. Like when you, you know, when you like inflate a soccer ball with an air pump. You put more air in it, right? That's where that comes from. Okay. The first definition is to distend with air or gas, blah, blah, blah. So we'll skip that one because it's uh, not the one we're looking at. Oh, actually it is at the end. Also, <laughs> here we go. Oh, I'm looking at the wrong, that's sorry, that was wrong. Inflation, the act of inflating, okay, that's the part we're skipping, or the state of being inflated, specifically, an expansion or increase, expansion or increase, of the currency of a country by the issuing of paper money, especially paper money not redeemable in species or in specie or insufficiently secured by precious metal. Oh, it's cute that they wrote this back when there was metal back in currency. Isn't that cute? Uh, inflation was and has always been an expansion of the money supply. It's an expansion of the money supply. That's what it is. It's not rising prices. Rising prices are a result of inflation, right? Prices can rise for other reasons. People can just raise their prices. But um, inflation itself is the expansion of the money supply. And if you don't allow that concept to continue to exist, if you drop that concept and you call inflation something else, or you get assigned a new definition to it, you've lost the, the concept you need to really look at the thing you're doing, which is increasing the money supply. Today, 2022, if you look up on Investopia, which is the kind of a default place for a lot of monetary 
financial terms. It says inflation is a rise in prices, which can be translated as the decline of purchasing power over time. Now, don't they didn't totally get rid of the old definition. They now say, well, there's different types of inflation. There's in the old definition, they've called this demand pull inflation. Okay, fine. But you don't hear people talking about the, the problem with demand pull. That's not what they're talking about. They're just saying it's inflation. Inflation's the problem. And what they've done by redefining inflation, and if you were a crazy person like me, I would have been in 1927 jumping up and down. Probably, uh, I don't know if <laughs> Mises jumped up and down, but like people like that would have been jumping up and down and saying, hey, stop redefining this. I don't know actually when the redefinition happened, but it's it's the expansion of the money supply. We need that concept. That concept needs to stay. You can't usurp the concept. You can't change the concept. Prices going up is a different thing. It can be largely driven by expansion of the money supply, which is inflation, but it's a different thing. We need to maintain these concepts. Um, apparently, either people didn't argue hard enough or no one cared that they were arguing. So the result is we've muddied the waters here with respect to what we're talking about, right? And, and that muddies the waters with respect to cause and effect. Like, what's causing what? What are we talking about? So when the Fed says they're fighting inflation, what do they mean? When in, when you watch CNBC or CNN and they say inflation's a problem, what do they mean? They mean the rise in prices. They're not talking about the thing. I mean, sometimes on CNBC they do because they're Wall Street guys and, like, they all know this, right? Um, <laughs> they'll be like, well, it's printing of the money. Right? That's it's the expansion of the money supply. They they know this. The Fed knows this. Chairman Powell knows this. Uh, I, I would say basically everyone on Wall Street knows this. Every everyone know they all the financial people know this. They know they know what's going on. They know why prices are rising. They know it's because of an increase in the money supply. And if you by the way, if you don't understand why that happens. That's just a simple supply and demand, right? You've got more dollars out there, same amount of stuff. The dollars get divvied up with the stuff. Like, okay, so each each thing that you're selling now is more. It includes labor and McDonald's hamburgers, right? So prices inflate, right? You need more dollars to get things because you've got more dollars in circulation. Now, of course, the gold standard, by the by, the gold standard uh, made it uh, really difficult to achieve monetary inflation because you needed gold to back the money. So more money meant you have more gold. So it wasn't a problem. But now it doesn't mean that. Thank you, Richard Nixon. Uh, so why are they not, they, they all these guys know this, Jerome Powell knows this. Why is he not standing up and saying, why is he saying, well, Ukraine, blah, blah. Why is he not standing up and saying, hey, guys, the problem's really this demand pull inflation problem. We expanded the money supply way too much. And we got to fix that. That's the problem. That's what happened. Why are they not communicating? Because they know. They don't not know. This, I'm not, no one, none of them are going to watch this and go, oh my God, he's saying things I didn't know. They all know this. So why are they communicating to the public in a way where they don't talk about this at all? The answer is, uh, is not that they're doing this for clarity. They're not trying to be clear. <laughs> That's not the answer. 
they don't think it's more clear to talk about Ukraine and use the word inflation to mean increased prices and not bother to talk about increased money supply. They're not trying to be clear. Uh, which begs the question, <laughs> are they trying to be unclear? Yeah. Um, what we're seeing here, and once you see this uh, in, uh, once you start seeing this, you see this everywhere. We are seeing, and I've talked about this before, but we are seeing the reintroduction of a nobility class. Um, one of the mentalities of the elites, and frankly, you know, the fact that the, the Kardashians have a popular television show does give me a little bit of sympathy for this viewpoint. I understand where they're coming from. Uh, the elites look out and they say, well, these people are imbeciles. I mean, just look at some of the stuff that's popular. Look at the choices they make. Look at these morons. That's how they view people, right? Um, and they say... Someone needs to take someone needs to take charge of humanity here and, and drive us in a direction that's the right way. And we're smart. True, they are. We're smart. Um, um, they're also immoral. Um, we'll 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 fix it. So they have this idea that they will be some sort of nobility class. That there will be the people in charge and there will be the peons. And the peons really just need to be, they don't need the truth. They need to be told uh, whatever it is they need to be told to get them to behave in the way they want. That's why no one wanted to have discussion about the efficacy of certain pharmaceuticals. Um, you just need to be told, trust, trust the science. No one wants to have a discussion about the complexities of uh, expanding the money supply and what's really happening. You just need to be told, like, things are going to be hard. We're going to raise interest rates because we're, don't worry, we're fighting that bad thing called inflation. Don't worry about what that is. It just, it just means prices go up. You just, the thing you don't like, we're taking care of it for you, right? Um, this is how they view people generally. And it's obviously elitist. It's immoral. Um, but it's not abnormal, right? This is how society has been for, you know, America is an anomaly. I've said this before, right? But you had, you know, in, in pre-revolutionary France, you had the three, the three estates. You had the clergy, the nobility, and everyone else. Uh, and since in America, uh, we have not had that. In America was, was intended to be a place without those three estates. It was, it's not a... It's not like Europe, people aren't as class conscious in America, or they haven't been necessarily. Um, and so, you know, you get this, uh, you get this kind of, I want to say egalitarian, it's not actually egalitarian, but you get this kind of classless, you get upward mobility, you get a middle class. Um, they don't like it. They, they're, they're people who have made it to the top in some way, and they want to stay there. And um, they view themselves as as the elites that, and they view you, just by virtue of the fact that you're not one of them, as uh, a farm animal, livestock to be taken care of, to be given the health care that you need, whether you know it or not, 
um, fed what you need, whether you know it or not, whether you know, you know, whether you like it or not. Um, and they've, and they just need to learn some magic words to placate you. The language specificity isn't important for you because you're just being sold propaganda. That's why they're not talking about this. It's not, it's not that they're dumb. It's not that Jerome Powell doesn't understand what's going on here. So, you're going to understand after this show basically what's going on. That's the goal. We're going to explain the Fed right now. We're going to explain what the Federal Reserve is and what its relationship is to the United States government. Now, you might say, I don't care. This doesn't matter. In the same way that you'd be like, I don't care about physics. Stop talking about momentum. It's just thinky talk, right? Well, if you were living on Dimorphos and the rocket was headed at you, you better well care about momentum and rocket science. And in this case, you are living in a world in, in which these elites are manipulating the economy. So if you care about how to pay for your food, if you like eating, you want to pay for medical bills, you want to be able to find work, you care about the life that your kids will have economically, if you want to afford your house or your apartment, pay for your children to exist or maybe go to school, save for retirement, you should care. This matters. This matters a great, great deal. So you got to understand this. You got to understand the relationship between the Federal Reserve and the United States government and the economy generally. So here we go. Um, <sighs> problems before this, but 1913 is where we're going to start. It's one of the worst years in American history. One of the worst presidents in American history, Woodrow Wilson. Um, it was, it's the year that we passed, uh, or I guess ratified the 18th amendment, uh, which, um, made income tax. I think it's the 18th income tax constitutional. I might be wrong on the number. Um, but one of the reasons it is one of the absolute worst years is it, it, uh, it saw, it ushered in the creation of the federal reserve. The Federal Reserve is the central bank of the United States. This is something that Hamilton and Jefferson argued over at the founding. Uh, no surprise, Hamilton, douchebag, big government Hamilton, wanted a Federal Reserve, wanted a big central bank. Jefferson didn't. Fast forward, you know, 200 years, the leftists make plays about Hamilton and how awesome he is. Um, so in 1913, Hamilton got his way. Eh, there was some attempts at this earlier, but 1913, Hamilton gets his way. Uh, long dead, but happy about it, I'm sure. We get the creation of the Federal Reserve. Then now, the, well, I'm not going to talk about the gold standard, but the Federal Reserve, the creation of the Federal Reserve is uh, one of the, it was the removal of one of the pillars of our currency. It allowed, it made way for, it cleared obstacles for removing the gold standard. So Federal Reserve, they're the central bank of the United States. What do they do? What's their charter? Uh, people had tried the income tax before, by the way, I see chat. People had tried the income tax before. There was uh, income taxes for wars, but they were then uh, um, repealed. I think some of them were struck down as unconstitutional. Um, so the income tax system that we're today, we did not have the income tax system until 1913. Um, oh, and you know, I should put up, I think there's been a couple super chats that I've missed before I get deeper into this. Um, I don't want people to feel left out. 
let's see. Keith the Hat Guy says, the Inflation Reduction Act was passed and signed into law. I don't know why you are talking about this. Inflation is already low, wasting time. <laughs> well, uh, good point, Keith. Good point. Uh, Biden fixed it. So I don't know. What am I bitching about? Uh, Richard Petz says their definition of inflation requires a good dose of conflation. See, Richard, you've got you've got the wordplay today. Richard's got the wordplay going on. He is right. We should just call it conflation. Uh, anyway, so 1913, Federal Reserve gets created. It's think of the Federal Reserve as think of the the, the federal government's got a. You, you go to a bank. You have a checking account at a bank. You got a savings account at a bank. If you need banking services, you go to a bank, right? Who does the federal reserve? Who does the federal government go to? Where do they go? Well, that is the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve. One of their their charter things is they do banking services for the U.S. government for the Treasury. The Treasury keeps its checking account at the Federal Reserve. When you pay your taxes, shame on you. But if you do pay your taxes, um, they check that you write or the money that they steal from you uh, against your will uh, while you're working, that goes into their their account at at the Treasury's account at the Federal Reserve. It's their account. They, so the, think about the Federal Reserve as like, this is the bank for the Treasury, for the U.S. government. So that's one of the things they do. <laughs> they have supervisory and, <laughs> excuse me, regulatory power over a bunch of financial institutions. We won't get into that. Um, <laughs> They are responsible generally for the stability of the financial system, which I find hilarious uh, because I, oddly enough, I don't see, I've seen historical charts for like the Dow Jones or the top 30 US stock, US 30 or whatever, that date back to the, the late 1800s. Um, and just by eyeballing it, it doesn't really look like there was a lot of volatility until after the creation of the Federal Reserve. Uh, but I've not seen anyone actually pull that data down and do like a variance calculation to, to actually see what it is. But uh, I think I think they would it, they would be hard pressed to demonstrate that they've actually made our financial system more stable. Um, you know what? Within sixteen years of their creation, we had nineteen twenty nine. So I don't know. I don't know how stable they are. So. Um, that was that's one of their charters and the last part of their charter we're going to talk about is or one of their features of their charter the last mandate here is um is the one we're going to talk about and this is uh a price stability mandate and actually they have it's called the dual mandate since since uh 1977 there's been this dual mandate and they are supposed to con um uh optimize for price stability and also um they're supposed to promote employment. Now, those two things are sometimes at odds with each other. Uh, so it's not clear what they're supposed to pick. But kind of their modus operandi has been to say, we're going to target about 2% inflation. Again, what they mean by inflation is price inflation. We're going to target 2% price inflation. We think I guess it takes PhDs in economics to figure out why this is, but we think 2% inflation a year is the right amount. That's the sweet spot for, for the economy. Um, now, they are paranoid of deflation. Deflation is when uh, prices fall. Now, you might ask, why would you be afraid of deflation? Like, 
if you went out to buy a new car and it was cheaper now than it was last year, wouldn't that be good? <laughs> wouldn't that be good for you? Wouldn't everyone kind of like price deflation? And yeah, maybe your wages would also go down commensurate eventually uh, with it, if like because wages wages are prices as well. But like, what's the big deal? What's the problem with deflation? Well, um, the modern economists will tell you that uh, what's the problem with deflation? What they're worried about is that falling prices lead to lower consumer spending. Now, they don't actually. That's not actually true in an absolute sense. If you are going to buy a TV and the price is lower, you still buy the TV. Even if, like, let's say your wage goes down and the price of the TV goes down and you buy the TV, you're still buying the TV. What goes down is the number that they're recording in their little book that, like, the way that they measure the uh, – it's a it's retarded. The way that they measure the health of the economy is through consumer spending in dollars. So – of course, that goes down. If everything costs less, you have to spend less. Therefore, it looks like the economy is getting worse because you're not spending more, and they're measuring spending. When you met, you get what you measure. Uh, so we now have an economy where there's very little savings because um, we measure where we care about spending, 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 spending. Um, spending is not production. Spending is the opposite. <laughs> Basically, it's production. Uh, unless you're spending it on capital equipment or, or you know, some productive thing. But spending is not, you know, <laughs> no one gets rich by charging shit on their credit card. Like, you don't, you don't go to Costco to get rich. You go to Costco to buy the stuff you need. <laughs> you consume. That's why it's called consuming. Producing is the opposite of consuming. Um, so we're in this financial system where we measure the health of the economy through consumption, thanks to Keynes. I believe, I think he's responsible for that shift. Um, and so they're very concerned because, well, the health, putting quotes, the health of the economy goes down if we have deflation because the numbers on my piece of paper go down. It doesn't mean your life is worse off. It doesn't mean standard of living is lower. Actually, it might be higher, but hey, we don't care. So they're very concerned about deflation. So they've got to make sure they like a little bit of inflation. I don't even know why the 2% number's there. It doesn't matter. They got a they got a two percent goal, so sometimes inflation is not two percent, and they need to change it. They need to fix it. Sometimes they want it up. Sometimes they want it down. <sighs> okay, so what are the tools? So that so the Federal Reserve is this bank. Let's get back to what they are. They got a mandate. Remember, banking services for their government, some regulations, stability of the financial system, and this last one is price stability. They've been trying to keep prices. Stable and by stable they mean two percent increase every year. That's that's newspeak for stable. So uh, this is their goal: two percent. So what do they do? How do they possibly do this? They're sitting there running the treasury checking account. How the hell do they do this? What are the tools that the Federal Reserve has in their arsenal? What can they do? And by the way, the Federal Reserve is not a private bank. It is. People sometimes say it's like kind of private. It's not private. It's it reports to Congress. It was, it was created by Congress. It reports to Congress. Um, the only thing private about it is it doesn't rely on Congress for funding. Um, so it makes its own money uh, through basically banking fees, right? It makes its own money. Uh, but it has to actually, it's allowed to have a certain amount of profit, but it's supposed to return the rest to the Treasury. So it's not, 
It's not supposed to be a money-making thing directly. I'm sure there's a lot of grift that goes on and revolving doors between the Federal Reserve and large financial institutions. That's a separate issue. Um, but the Federal Reserve uh, is a government body. It's a government entity. Um, and the idea, it's, it's, it's semi-detached, um, and right, con- Congress has oversight of the board of the Federal Reserve because the idea was they don't want Congress uh, dis- making dis- financial decisions all the time because it will be politically driven. So the idea was, well, we need them to be a little bit of independent. We'll have a board of governors, and that's how they'll report to Congress, and we can you know control that. But we're not going to get into the nitty-gritty of what, what they're doing every quarter. We're not going to tell Jerome Powell what to say when he gets in front of cameras. So that's the idea behind the Fed. So what are the tools? What can the Fed do? They're running the checking account for the Treasury. Big whoop. That doesn't mean they can do anything. What else can they do? They've got um, they got three main tools in their arsenal here. The first one is they set what's called a reserve requirement for banks. Um, when you are a bank, you've got to keep a certain percentage of the money that you have deposited. You have to keep a certain percentage of it on uh, at the Federal Reserve, or I think you can also keep it in cash, but basically you have to keep it at the Federal Reserve. It's got to be reserved. You got to keep it there. Um, so you can't lend all of it out, all right? You can't lend all of it out. You got to keep some amount in cash eh, to prevent runs on banks and whatever, right? That's the idea. So you got to keep some with the Federal Reserve. They've got some of the cash. They can set what that uh requirement is they can say well you have to have 10 percent of your cash in in with us or your your deposits or you have to have three percent of your deposits now um when they uh when banks lend money out like if bank if a bank has a a billion dollars right uh if they can lend out 900 million of that right then you've got 900 millions of dollars worth of loans going out in the in the in the economy, right? And you've got the economic activity associated with $900 million. And that's that would be a 10% reserve requirement because 10% of it would be not allowed to be loaned out. Now, the Federal Reserve can change that. So if they say, well, 5% now has to be, you can, you can, so now they can loan uh, another, what, 50 million, right? All right, yeah. Now they can loan another, another, they just got, another, they got another 5% that they can loan out. So now you get that, increased economic activity. Um, or the the Federal Reserve can say, actually, now you have to have 20% uh, on reserve. So now instead of loaning out 900 million, they can only loan out 800 million, and they've got to keep the rest in the Federal Reserve. So they can they can adjust that rate or that, that um, requirement um, allows them to kind of let there be more lending in the economy or pull back the amount of lending that banks do in the economy, right? So that's that's one tool they have in their toolbox. And obviously lending is, and, and, and lending, by the way, is the creation of money. So um, this is also maybe something, a concept that people don't always understand. If you deposit a hundred bucks into your bank, right? They give you basically an IOU. You can log into your bank and you can see I have a hundred dollars in there, but it's not there. It's not all there. Let's say they're lending out 90 of it. That means they've lent 90 of it to someone else. Now, you gave them 100 bucks. Let's say they lent all of it just for clear, just to make it easy. You gave 100 bucks. If they lent out the 100 bucks, so someone else now has 
the hundred bucks, but you still have in your balance, your balance still says you have a hundred bucks. And now they are like, they actually have a hundred. They like their balance is a hundred bucks. They just transferred, lended it from the bank. The bank lent it to them. So now there's 200 bucks in existence where there was only a hundred bucks in existence before. So lending creates money in that sense, right? So um, if the Federal Reserve wants more money to be created, one of the things that they can do if they want to increase the money supply is they can lower the reserve requirement. If they want to reduce the money supply, they can increase the reserve requirement. Um, and when banks, there's a period, I don't remember when it is, like, I don't know if it's once a month or once a quarter or whatever, once every two weeks, the bank has to reconcile. They have to, they have to look at their deposits and they have to say, do we have enough on reserve with the Fed? And if they don't, they either have excess or they have not enough, right? If they don't have enough and they need to fix that, they need to fix it by um, borrowing. <laughs> they need to go get some more, right? They need to go get some more uh, Federal Reserve money. They need to get some more money in their account. They need to borrow it, basically. Um, they need Fed funds. So they can go out and they could get it directly from the Federal Reserve. Um, and they do that. At, there's something called the discount rate. Uh, they can borrow it from the Federal Reserve and then they, they throw reserve charges a discount rate. But normally what they do is they just borrow it from other banks who happen to have an excess. And when they do that, um, it's called, that's the Fed funds rate. That's the rate at which they borrow from other banks. So it's kind of complicated um, how they how they get this, but that's the, that, that's the Fed funds rate. And the Fed funds rate is not directly controlled by the Federal Reserve, but we'll talk in a minute about how it kind of is. So um, so that's, that's where they can get that money. So that's what the bank has to do. The reason we're talking about how banks get money is now we're on the second tool in the Federal Reserve uh, arsenal. The second tool is they can change the discount rate. This is the money, the rate at which they lend money to banks who need more in their reserve account, right? Um, it generally is uncommon to change the discount rate. I mean, un less common than other things the Federal Reserve does. Um, again, if they want to... Um, you know, that rate indicates how loose the Federal Reserve is with money. If they're charging a lot of interest, then they're not loaning it very easily. If they're charging very little interest, then it, it, then they're very loose with money, then it's it's easier and they're, they're loaning more. So um, so the these these open market interest rates that, that banks pay between each other are is the Fed fund rate. And but the discount rate is what they pay from the Fed. Right. So or what the Fed, Fed charges. So if they get it from the Fed, they get charged a discount rate. So the Fed can change that uh, if they want to. And the last thing, which is I think the most common thing the Federal Reserve does, the last tool in their arsenal, and the most common tool, is they can adjust their balance sheet. And that basically means they can buy assets. And it's important to understand how they buy assets. So let's. I'm actually going to pull this up. We're going to look at... Let's see. Share the screen. Bear with me, guys. This is important stuff. I know it's a little bit complicated. Okay. Here is. Here's the current as of September 21st. This is this is called the system open open market account holdings of domestic securities. Uh, they also they have foreign uh, currencies as well, but. Um, this is basically, um, 
the assets of the Federal Reserve. And what they do is when if they want to um, increase the amount of currency in the system, they want to increase credit, they want to, in the language of <laughs> the old New Century Dictionary, if they want to inflate the money supply, they want to create more money. Remember, they, they, they can inflate the money supply by doing those other two things we talked about, right? The discount rate and um, the reserve requirements. But the most common thing they do to inflate the money supply, which is also called, if you heard quantitative easing, you've heard that term in the past several years, same thing. They buy securities from the government, from the treasury. Well, not directly from the treasury, but they buy treasury bills, treasury notes, treasury bonds. Those are all kind of the same thing. They, 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 they're named differently depending on how they're bought and sold and how long they mature. But uh, basically, they're government loans. So the government needs money, and it's like, this is, you know, we'll give you X amount uh, a year if you lend us this much money so that we can pay for whatever Bernie Sanders wants or whatever it is the government needs money for. So people buy these treasury um, bills, treasury notes, treasury bonds. And what the Federal Reserve can do, and if you see in this chart, the Federal Reserve has a bunch. They've got, uh, look, U.S. Treasury notes and bonds, they've got $4.8 trillion on their balance sheet. Um, they also, by the way, have some other stuff. Uh, they started buying, I think this is recent, but I'm not an expert. Uh, they started buying mortgage-backed securities that were backed from by Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. So they got like $2.7 of those sitting here, right? Um, and in total, there's SOMA holdings. SOMA, again, remember, is the system open market account holdings. The, the SOMA holdings total is $8.29 trillion. So what, how do they buy these and how does this create money? Well... Uh, it's exactly how you would love to buy things. Um, what they do is they go to a bank that has, um, let's say they want $100 billion <laughs> worth of treasuries, treasury notes. They go to a bank that's got one of these, and they say, we'll take those, and we'll type some numbers into your Federal Reserve account, and voila, um, thank you very much. We just purchased them. That's what we did. Uh, so they they literally just credit dollars into the reserve, the bank, because that bank has a reserve account at the Fed, right? So they just, doo -doo, they type it in and, hey, we paid you, <laughs> the end. Um, and uh, And that's it. Now, of course, that bank then takes that money, which has just been newly created, and they can use it to fund other banks. When other banks are low on their Federal Reserve requirements, whatever, they can, hey, and they loan it at the Fed fund rate. Uh, so they they loan it to other banks, and that, that's how that money gets in the system. It helps to be at the top of the system, right? Because <laughs> um, they get access to that money before prices have gone up. Um, so eventually, obviously, uh, prices will rise because you've just inflated the money supply at that point, right? So th that's how they inflate the money supply. They literally just like, thank you for the treasuries, type it in. Now we've credited your account. We just, boop, we made money out of thin air. That's what they do. They're authorized to do that. That's what they do. Now, um, if they want to decrease 
uh, the money and and the and credit in the, that's in the system. They just do the opposite. They take their treasuries and they say, here, Chase Bank, you get these, and we're going to deduct this from your reserve account. So now Chase can't loan that money because uh, they've now they have that their deposits have to actually uh, uh, be reduced, right? Because they their reserve amount has been reduced, right? So like they've just destroyed money um, and they've pulled back the money supply in the system. That's the most common way that the Federal Reserve mucks with our financial system. Um, so when when they talk about um, quantitative easing, it's when they're buying when they're buying those treasuries and just typing stuff in uh, to, to the bank's account at the Federal Reserve. Okay, so what's going on? in the economy now. So that's all background. You should understand. Does anyone have, before we move on, does anyone have questions? Does anyone have questions about um, what we've just gone over? I'll wait. Okay, it doesn't look like anyone has any big questions. All right, so what's going on in the economy today? What is the state of the economy? Um, what are we doing? Well, let's first talk about inflation in air quotes. And instead of just talking about it, let's take a look at this chart. Here is the, I should probably make this bigger. Uh, now this is the consumer, this is urban consumers, but urban, the price, CPI, consumer price index for all urban consumers. Um, from This is from like 1950 to today, right? Now when people say inflation colloquially, they don't mean actual money inflation that we've just talked about. They mean a rise in basically the consumer price index. Um, so people say, well, current inflation is 8.26% as of August, I think, right? That's, high, that's more than two. That's bigger than two. And it's basically, that's basically the CPI. If we look at, we can zoom in on this a little bit and look more recently. You can see that um, in 2020, uh, like right at the beginning of 2020, there was a little dip in prices. And then they've been rising pretty steadily ever since. And they kind of flattened since June, July this year a little bit. Um, but I guess not enough. The Fed was saying it's not it's not working. Um, so that's this is the inflation that everyone's talking about. Air quote inflation. This is this rise is a rise in prices. So that's where we are. Like I said, the current inflation rate is uh I guess the last one was 8.26% in August. Now, that's the consumer price index. Inflation rate is actually slightly, I mean, like I said, the consumer price index is not exactly the inflation rate, but kind of the inflation rate. Um, 
I will just show you the consumer price index. You'll see that they're basically the same. I mean, they're they're not they're not exactly the same. One's based on the other one, but uh, here's the United here's the inflation rate. Right, it's very similar, and you can see also this goes this goes from like 2000 looks like 2018 roughly to currently, and you know 2020 was down here. It's been going up. So this is the this is the the quote inflation rate, which again is not money inflation. They're using this language, United States inflation rate. It is not the inflation like we would think about it. It is increase in prices. It's rise in prices. That's what that is. So um, oh, hold on. Richard Pets has got something else to say. We'll, we'll take a moment and, and Richard says, thank you, Richard. He says, take a look at the yen and how they're selling off the U.S. Treasuries. Ditto the U.K., only with them it's their own treasuries currencies being devalued s-h-i-f which i think we can all guess what that means it begins with an expletive um i think maybe not i'm not sure what s actually i was thinking s-h-t-f i don't know what s-h-i-f anyway um Yes, so I'm not I'm not going to get into like other currencies, but there's the dollar is the reserve currency. A lot of companies, Japan and UK, I think, own a lot of treasuries as well, so they can affect all this. But um, and and the United States is is uh, kind of in a nice position, frankly. I mean, they, we can be affected by other countries, but also our, the dollar is the reserve currency, so. Um, other people are doing worse, mostly right now. Anyway, oh, Richard says it was SHTF. Okay, uh, so like I said, this is this what we the chart we just looked at was a rise in prices, not inflation, but it's called inflation. We put it in quotes. Now Powell can now talk about rising prices, which is what he's actually talking about, without even acknowledging actual inflation, because you can't say you're not talking about inflation because that's the word he's using, but he's not talking about inflation. Um, he can talk about COVID, he can talk about Ukraine, he can talk about the supply chain. But of course, everyone, like I said, everyone on Wall Street, uh, they know the underlying main cause. I actually heard someone on CNBC mention it today. They're like, well, they, I think they use the phrase printing money, right? They know, they know what actual inflation is, but that's not what's being communicated. They know, but politicians don't know. Uh, you, you know, Elizabeth Warren's like, it's corporate greed that causes in inflation. She means rise in prices. It's, Paul Krugman is similarly uh, Nobel Prize in economics. Uh, I think his Nobel Prize was in getting everything that he's ever predicted wrong. Uh, but he's like, ah, it's corporate greed too. Like he's on the Elizabeth Warren bandwagon. Um, and I found, I finally found this TikTok video that I had lost, which I think is great. Here is someone, I forget this guy's TikTok account, but, uh, he's, he's cool. And he just goes around and like, he's just asking people in DC, politicians in DC, uh, what inflation is. Let's see what they say. This is inflation. So sorry, his 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 question here is what causes inflation, and that's Eric Swalwell. He I think doesn't answer. No answers. Nobody knows. Can you tell us what causes inflation? 
Uh, this is Chip Roy, Republican from Texas, and then uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene. I'm reading this for people who are only listening. Uh, from Georgia, Republican. much government spending i like it price so so she says too much government spending the other guy didn't say anything uh i think this is ayala presley i'm not sure uh she's about to tell us that it's price gouging from corporations let's see gouging uh from corporations price gouging from corporations what else conflicts abroad uh, conflicts abroad yeah anything else i think that's it for now do you think the american people academic discussion on inflation or would they rather know that we're doing something to lower costs for everyday Americans? What do you think? (laughs) This guy's an asshole. His name is Hakeem Jeffries. And because he doesn't know the answer, he says, do you think the American people would rather us talk about have an academic, it's thinky talk. Do they want a thinky talk discussion or do they want to know something? They want to know we're doing something to help. How can you do anything to help if you can't have the conversation? You're like, it's like saying, you know, you go to your doctor and you're like, what's wrong with me? I, I, mean, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know, but do you want me to help? Because I'll, I'll, you know, inject some shit into you if you want. Like, that's you don't know. You can't help if you don't know. This guy clearly doesn't know. Uh, and he's hiding behind arrogance uh, to answer. OK, let's keep going. Here, what do you hear. think? I want to hear. What are you doing to lower costs, sir? What, do you think? what causes inflation, Congresswoman? This is Katie Porter, Democrat from California. Will you tell us? She doesn't want us to know. Tell us. He's only thinking about his stride and his <laughs> four no thoughts away. on economic issues at this time. <laughs> I love that that guy's ran away. <laughs> He's running away. I don't want to. Don't, don't make me talk about inflation. So uh, our lawmakers don't know what the hell it is. Um, <laughs> yeah, Richard, I know your doctor. Uh, the lawmakers don't know what it is, and we don't. Most of the public doesn't know. I mean, I don't have to play videos about how poorly the public answers basic questions like, where's New Jersey on a map? So uh, I'm sure they don't understand this either. So um, why don't they want to talk about inflation of the money supply, right? Uh, And let's stop using this word inflation to mean rising prices. So let's ask, what is behind the rising prices? Let's look, what's the state of the economy? Where are we? What has happened in recent years? Why might prices be rising? Without asking Elizabeth Warren, if it's like there's a rise, I don't know if there's a rise, like there's a greed chart. Um, I know one thing she says is, um, well, they have profits. Profits are good, not bad, unless you're Elizabeth Warren, in which case she thinks they're immoral. Profits are actually moral in a free market. Uh, but in in Elizabeth Warren's mind, profits are bad. Now, um, you know, I don't, I don't know if she's got a little graph that shows like, look, greed has gone up. Maybe she does. But let's look at other stuff that might have gone up. Things that might uh, matter. Let's see here. First thing we're going to look at is something called M two. Now there are various ways to measure the supply of money in the United States. Now, in the previ- previously, I have shown an M1 graph for this. I shouldn't have that. Was, there's a, there the, well, I'll get into this in a minute. This is M2. If you look at it from, this is the, basically money supply. This is a way to measure money supply. Um, this goes from 1959 uh, all the way through current day. 
you can see there's a, a nice little, nice in quotes, nice little rise of this um, kind of a, eh, looks like the, the beginning of a exponential rise actually. <laughs> um, it's, it's kind of rising all the way up until 2020, at which point, boom. It, so it, we get to way back in 1959, we're at about, what is this? $286 billion in circulation. By 2020, we had gotten ourselves up to $15 trillion in circulation because we haven't been good at this for a long, long time. Um, and of course, somewhere, I think it was in the 60s or 70s, was it 70s? Nixon, 60s, I guess, Nixon, 67. I think Nixon took us off the gold standard, so uh, that helped. <laughs> so here we go. So in in March of 2020, we're at 15.98, oh, sorry, here, let's do February, 15.48, 458 trillion dollars in circulation and then you'll see you can see here there's this big spike boom we go up to 18 trillion right away and then we we've really quickly by january of this year we've gotten to 21.69 trillion so this is you know 15 to 21 we're talking about uh what's that a six trillion dollar jump now if you look at m1 this jump is actually huge it's like 20 trillion or something um I should not have shown that as an example last time because uh, the M1 graph, uh, the reason that that jump is there is a, it's a technical reason that's not real. Uh, the Federal Reserve changed the rule for whether money market accounts should be measured in M1 or not. So like it doesn't, is a measurement change, right? But M2 includes M1 plus other stuff. So M2 is the more comprehensive, better measurement here. You still see this spike. It's not 20 trillion, but it's $6 trillion over a couple of years. It's huge, right? It's a huge spike. Unlike everything before, right? If you're, you know, it's kind of a slope, 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 and then suddenly, boom, we really change trajectory here in, in 2020. And obviously we know why that is. That's, uh, well, I won't say why it is. You can guess why it is. <laughs> you can guess why that, that might happen at that time. And this is actual inflation. So if someone says like, what's, what is inflation? This, this chart is inflation. That's what inflation is. Here's the money supply. <laughs> There's more of it now. That's, that's inflation, right? Um, now, the question is, what are the things that caused this? Why do we have more? Well, there's three things that cause this inflation. And we're going to go through them. Three reasons that we have this monetary inflation. Um, let's see. I'll pull up the first one. I wish I was faster. I don't know how to be faster at screen sharing. Maybe I'm just impatient. Um, where is this? Sorry, guys. Here it is. Here's a chart of the national debt. Pretty straightforward. Um, also depressing. So this goes from 1920s. We're down. I don't know what this number is. It's not actually saying, but it's, it's maybe a half a trillion less. Maybe, I don't know, 200 billion, something like that. Okay. So here we are. And, you know, it goes up, blah, 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 blah. Um, it's been a great and helps with that. Uh, and 
it goes up and if we go to 2020 which is right around here you see again just m2 there's kind of a shift kind of shoots up dramatically because spending that right so this is this is government spending this is the government spending money this is the debt that they're going into so if you look at fiscal year the end of fiscal year 2019 we're at 24.3 trillion dollars in debt and we jumped up to 28.4 so um was that five trillion dollars basically five trillion dollars just in spending just in spending so that's a big part of that six something trillion dollar jump we saw before so that's one thing that's one that's one thing that happened okay what's another thing that happened well remember i said that um the fed could control discount rates but i said they don't do that very often this is the rate that the federal reserve will charge banks for borrowing money in order to maintain their um reserve requirements right well let's take a look at that discount rates discount rates have been all over the place historically but here after 2020 where they went to the historical low this says 0.25 it's actually it was a window it was between zero and 0.25 percent so they that's why you heard people say it was reduced to zero it's a it's a quarter point window it was reduced to, to between zero and 0.25 so that's the interest rate and by the way the that's that's the discount rate um that's the rate that the fed charges you to borrow money if you're a bank um that's still down there it hasn't changed as far as i know i don't think that's changed this chart doesn't say it's changed. So that's something that's different. Um, by the way, the other thing they did, um, which you don't have a chart for, is uh, they also lowered the reserve requirement to zero. <laughs> you don't have to keep any money in with the Fed if you don't want to. So that's a big deal. But the last thing they did here, the I guess I said there was three, maybe there's four if we throw in that they lowered the reserve uh, requirement. The last thing they did was remember how i said if they wanted to buy something they wanted to buy securities um and remember i said buying securities creates money right because they what do they do they take the security from the bank and they just type it in and your bank account here's here's the money right well let's take a look at how many how much securities they've owned here is this is from 2008 till now you can see in 2020, they went from having total assets of $3.76 trillion to $8.9 trillion. That's quite a jump. They bought a lot of assets. The, the Fed balance sheet is huge, or that side of the balance sheet, the assets, huge compared to um, where they were, right? So they, they, that and that is a creation of money they injected all this money into the economy and remember that money then was used to lend out and create more money so there's a follow-on effect there and we looked at this this is we looked at that soma thing before the system open market account that's what this balance is that this is the sum of all those things treasuries notes mortgage-backed securities all the stuff that they hold all right so that's that's what that is. That's what that is. Um, 
All right. So I think the question we should be asking here, which we can't ask because we don't have the right language, but the question we should, it shouldn't be what's causing inflation, right? That's a very clear answer. We, I just showed you politicians spent too much money and the Federal Reserve has been injecting money into the economy in a couple different ways. That's what caused inflation. The end. It's not rocket science. And everyone on Wall Street knows that. Jerome Powell knows that. They all know that. That's what caused price inflation. That Because that's what inflated the money supply. That's it. Now, in some ways, it's the Federal Reserve's job to clean up after the government's mess. Right? Prior to the removal of the gold standard, the government couldn't just borrow money. They couldn't, they, they couldn't have this creation of money scheme because money had to be backed by gold. You couldn't just type, like, Oop, done, right? So you couldn't have this. Um, but the Federal Reserve, now, you could say in some ways it's their job to clean up after the mess of Congress. Congress overspends, da, da, da. they screw up the economy in other ways. They could, they could, spend too much, they can tax too much, they can add regulations that stifle business, whatever Congress can do. You know, Washington can, the government can really screw up the economy in a lot of ways, and it's the Federal Reserve's job to clean it up according to their standards, which we don't, I don't necessarily agree with, but that's their job. The problem is they're also good at making messes. So like they don't just, they like cleaning it up, they're bad at cleaning it up. So like they're, they're like a five-year-old who takes like a dirty cloth and like rubs the clean counter. I'm fixing, I'm helping, right? So they're not helping, but that's their job. Uh, it's to kind of clean up after the mess uh, that the government makes. The Fed is basically an enabler, right? So, um, you know, the government can crush the economy in a million different ways. The Fed's job is to fix it. But often what they do, I mean, first of all, they're targeting weird things like, uh, we need 2% inflation all the time. And they do these things where like, we're just gonna, you know, print money like there's no tomorrow. Uh, and that's how we got into the mess that we're in right now. Um, take a moment, Matt says, I'm an hour behind, but great show so far. Welcome, Matt. Uh, you'll see this in an hour. I hope you're still with us in an hour. Because it did get a little bit heavy. But that's where, the, that's where we are right now with respect to inflation, uh, price, the rising prices and price inflation. It's, it's because of actual inflation that no one's talking about. They're not talking about because they don't want it fixed. They don't want it fixed because you, they don't want their toys taken away. If you take away the ability to print money, why would anyone vote for Bernie Sanders? Right, you, you like if you can't spend money you don't have as a politician, what power do you have? That's what they want to do. They want power, and of course, you know, no one wants to have this conversation about printing money, about inflating the money supply, and they don't have to anymore because they've just changed the definition of inflation. They can talk about inflation all day when they're never actually talking about inflation, right? And everyone in the know knows, and the rest of you just don't. You know, you're not supposed to know. You're not supposed to understand how this works. It's horribly complex, blah, 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 blah. I don't think it's that complex. I know I just talked probably for an hour about just the Fed and what it means. But, like, it's worth taking an hour class in, like, this is how the puppet masters are manipulating the economy that you live in. Where you, This is why prices go up. 
This is why, this is how they're screwing you over. It's important to understand. It's important to understand. All right. I promised you boobs. Well, a discussion about boobs, let's be clear. We're going to have a discussion about fake boobs. We're done with the Fed. That's that's all I want to say about the Fed. I want people to understand it. Um, understand what's happening. And uh, I'm not going to prognosticate, but it's not over. This raising of the interest rate. I am going to prognosticate. I shouldn't prognosticate, but I am going to. This this raise. Oh, by the way, when they say they're going to raise, what what I should explain this. When Jerome Powell said he's going to raise the Fed funds rate, they're raising the target Fed funds rate. They can't directly raise the Fed funds rate. That's why he says it's the target rate. What he's signaling is this is the rate we want you banks to charge each other for borrowing money um, to meet your Federal Reserve requirements. We're going to sell or buy other assets and use our other levers to try and get you to do that. So they can't directly set it, but banks kind of fall in line. They can set the discount rate. If they want to just change the discount rate, they could. Um, I'm not actually 100% sure why they're not changing the discount rate. I'm sure there's some reason. Um, but uh, that's what's going on. Uh, and I, I don't think we are out of the woods by any means. And I, I without being an economist, I my argument for that is we printed too much. We printed weight. We printed more than we have in history. A little bit of rate increases for a year isn't going to solve the problem, right? This is going to hurt. It's going to hurt for longer. I think the Fed's probably going to come back and go, "Gee, it's still not working." That's my prediction. Uh, I guess we need some more suffering. Uh, they're because they're just doing what they know how to do, um, and I don't think they have the cones to do what actually would be needed, which is to pull all that money back out of the economy. Right, like, boom. They're not going to do that. Uh, they're going to take these little steps, and they're going to wonder why these little steps aren't working enough. They're not working enough because you printed way more than those little steps are pulling back. That's uh, that's my prediction. I'm just an engineer. What the hell do I know? All I know is that momentum is mass times velocity. So, Okay, now let's talk about fake boobs. I had, This is a question. Oh, uh, Richard Pett says, don't I mean knockers? I, is that a Canadian thing, Richard? I don't know. I, <laughs> I mean knockers, sure. I'm going to read a quick. This question comes from Mr. Dill McRellish Pickleford. Uh, he's not actually anonymous. I know. I know who he is, but I won't out him. But he likes to call himself Dill McRellish Pickleford. <clears throat> so he he writes <laughs> to me. Uh, but also, I, I don't understand the healthcare system. Something seems fucked, but I don't know the solutions. If you depress doctor wages by socializing, then you get worse doctors and less doctors. But does the world really need more fake tit doctors? Maybe they've gotten really good at them. Maybe an episode about fake tits, not sure. All right. I'm not going to do a whole episode about that okay the world does the world need more breast augmentation physicians uh look if if fake tit doctors are a byproduct of the free market then yes then we do absolutely 
if they're a byproduct of the free market. Because what we need is a free market. We need a free market in healthcare. And I don't really care how many, you know, butt implantation or liposuction or fake boob doctors happen to be a byproduct of free market healthcare. I don't actually think we'd have more um, because they're already in the more free market, which we'll talk about in a minute because they're not, you can't pay for, I don't think you can pay for your boob jobs with your insurance money. Maybe if you had a mastectomy or something, but generally you can't. Um, we have nothing close to a free market in healthcare. So when you say it seems something's effed, but I don't know the solutions, I, I part of me is kind of surprised that he said this because I know this guy, and I'm like, well, what do you mean? Of of course something's effed. <laughs> what are you talking about? The government is deeply intertwined with the healthcare industry. We are in the process of full socialization. We're not quite there yet to single payer or like full socialized medicine in the U.S., but we will get there. We will get, absolutely we'll get there. Um, Because the conservatives never roll anything back. So the best they do is like, let's not, you know, let's not go quite this fast, guys. They'll get there, right? We'll get there. Um, And he, you know, he's saying it seems effed. Well, look, man, seems can be measured. Let's take, let's take a look at it. We can measure. It doesn't just seem, it's measurably screwed. Um, here, here's an example of a measurement. Here is, just found this online randomly, cumulative percent change since December 2007 in healthcare prices and GDP deflator. I, I don't know why they want the GDP deflator on there. I guess it's fun to have both. Uh, but this is showing you what, uh, how healthcare prices have changed since 2007 relative to that's in the so healthcare prices are this blue line and it's how they've changed relative to um how prices have changed so if there's a gap between these like there is for most of this graph it means that healthcare rates are rising higher than inflation basically that's what they're looking at here for those of you listening um, around when this starts in 2007, remember Obama is elected in 2008, the end of 2008, gets into office 2009. One of his main, uh, one of his main promises is Obamacare, universal healthcare or whatever, some healthcare reform. You'll see that uh, prior to his election, the healthcare price and the inflation were rising about the same. We're right on top of one another. He gets elected, and right at the end of 2008, it looks like, honestly, it looks like November 2008. It looks like it's perfect, but I don't know. Right there, boom, the healthcare prices start to take off. Possibly in anticipation of something hmm. uh, relative to inflation. And of course, it doesn't, Obamacare doesn't come into effect until 2010. But by 2010, you've got healthcare going up 6% and inflation 2.5%. So you've got that gap established. And that gap has continued consistently all the way until the end of this graph, which looks like it's the end of 2018. I don't know what it's, I think it's probably worse now. I don't know. But 
you can, I'll just read this little blurb at the bottom of this random webpage here, healthsystemtracker.org. Since the end of 2007, healthcare prices have grown 21.6%, while prices in the general economy have grown 17.3%. So, growing prices are getting, healthcare prices are growing faster than everything else. Why? We could do an entire series on government involvement in healthcare, which I'm not going to do, but we're going to go really quickly through. Um, when you talk about an industry like healthcare, you've got to divorce yourself from the idea that the free market is involved basically in any way. It's almost unrelated. It's socialized almost completely. And what's not socialized is like cronyized. <laughs> it's, it's, not, it's not a free market. By any means. I mean, even physician licensing and pharmaceutical, like only certain pharmacies, like only pharmacies can fulfill prescriptions for certain drugs and only physicians that are ready can write the prescriptions. Even that is not free market. And that's been going on since the 1800s when states started passing laws about medical licensing and physicians being able to write, you know, only pharma. I guess pharmaceuticals maybe came in the late 1900s. I think in 1905, the AMA was like, they had the kind of a voluntary means of, of controlling the drug marketplace, but that eventually, you know, got rolled into the FDA in 1906, more what the precursor to the FDA. So the government's involved, even just on the level of like, who can give you Tylenol with codeine? All right. And who can, like, just simple stuff, they're, they're involved. Who can, you know, who can perform a procedure? Government's involved, right? Okay. Insurance regulation, an obvious one, right? First of all, why do we have all this health insurance? Well, that's partly the government's, but we can get there. Like, look, insurance regulation generally, um, thanks to Obamacare, there's now an employer mandate. That's called intervention, serious intervention. There's an employer mandate, and thanks to Obamacare, um, Insurance companies can't charge for pre-existing conditions. I've got to have insurance that covers things that I will never use. Um, and I'm going to be subsidizing people that have problems that I would like. It can't be individualized anymore, so there's no incentive to be, I might as well be diabetic. Right? I mean, I, I don't want to be diabetic for other reasons, but like, yeah, like I'm going to get, taken. we're all, it's socialized. It's very, it's like, it's, that's why I'm saying we're very close to complete socialized medicine at this point. Um, the Stabilization Act of 19... So FDR is responsible for a lot of this crap. The Stabilization Act of 1942, thank you, FDR. He froze wages and salaries because free markets suck and he's a commie. Or dictator, actually. He's more of a fascist. FDR was a fascist. You heard it here. He's a fascist who sold... He decided to freeze wages and salaries. Um, well, what, what during the wage freeze... Healthcare benefits were exempted. So what did employers do? Employers were like, well, we can't. We need to hire people. We need to attract good people. We're not allowed to offer more money. Oh. We'll give them more healthcare. Healthcare, we're allowed to give them more healthcare. Great. So the government created this. Like, you don't have, your is your car insurance tied to your job? Why the hell is your healthcare tied to your job? Does that make any sense? It makes zero sense. Why your employer and, you know... <laughs> your venereal disease that you've got are related. Like, why are those two things related? I don't know what people got. Like, why is your employer involved in this? Government. That's why. 
government. That's why your employer is involved in it. Um, Stabilization Act was just just uh, one of the things. And so now, and now, the, and the government also has a bunch of a bunch of programs. They've got Medicare programs, which is the retirement health care. So the entire Social Security system. Thank you again, fascist FDR. Thank you again for the Social Security system. Um, the guy was like a king for you know over a decade or whatever. Okay, he gives us Social Security. Now we get Medicare, retirement health care. The government now also has Medicaid for low income people. Um, this all this stuff gives the government massive leverage as a buyer to like throw their weight around and require companies different like to say nothing of all the state regulations, right? You can't get you know health insurance doesn't cross state lines. Like you can't offer plans in one state, and like the whole thing is a mess. It's not a mess because of the free market. Buying an iPhone isn't a mess. It's horribly complicated. It's not a mess. It's really hard to make an iPhone. It's not a mess. You can go to the Apple Store. You can buy one online. There's plenty of ways to get it. The end. If you just smartphone market generally, you can choose from Samsung or Apple or look. Okay, fine. Like, it's pretty easy. <laughs> prices seem to be going down. Quality's going up. Prices are kind of staying the same, and quality's going up. And with the iPhone in particular, but a lot of stuff like prices are going down. Quality's going up. Welcome to the free market. That's how the free market works. It doesn't work that way in healthcare because it's nothing related to a free market. If you want healthcare to be cheap, if you want healthcare to be awesome and cheap and innovative, you need a free market. If you want it to be the DMV, you know, vote for Obamacare again and complain about how you want the government to be involved because damn them pharmaceutical companies and damn the healthcare companies. Yeah, they're, they are behemoth jerks. They, it is, yes, but it's because they're in bed with the government because, because they have to be. They have evolved into um, lobbying firms because the government's in control of their entire industry. If all they're good at is lobbying and, and getting favors from the government, the minute there's a free market, they'll go out of business or they'll be forced to change. Because we don't want to pay for that crap. I don't want to pay for, let's say, abortion I'm never going to have an abortion. My wife is never going to have an abortion. I don't need health insurance that covers abortion. I don't need to pay for it. The end. Right? I don't know if abortion is covered by health insurance. I'm just using an extreme example. But, like, there's plenty of stuff. Like, I don't need I don't need health insurance that will cover diabetes, actually. I never plan on getting diabetes. I'm not pre-diabetic. I, I know the process to become diabetic, and I don't plan on doing that. So... I don't need that covered. Probably need cancer covered. Like there's certain things. Like the free market just isn't working because it's not being employed. There's there's no free market here. Um, and this is what you get when you have a moral hazard of a third party paying for something, by the way. Because you don't pay for your stuff directly. I um I had to, several years ago, I broke my um collarbone and I and punctured a lung. Uh that's a separate story. I didn't realize I had done it. But um, I broke my collarbone, uh, eventually figured out that that's why it was hurting, uh, thanks to some x-rays, <laughs> and I didn't have health insurance at the time. Uh, so I was like, well, I'm going to have to pay. I had to pay a sports doctor person to, like, he was like an orthopedic, what I don't know, open me up, stick my collarbone, not my shoulder, my collarbone, stick my collarbone together. He put some titanium screws and a plate in to hold the collarbone there. And so I'd pay out of pocket. It was like, I think it was like eight or $9,000, right? So I know, it sounds like a lot. 
but it was like $30,000 when they thought I was going through insurance. And I, and I was like, well, I'm not going through insurance. I'm just, I'm going to write you a check. <laughs> I'm not going to go through insurance. Oh, wait, I, I need to get out the different price list. <laughs> like, oh, oh, really? <laughs> That's how things work? I mean, if you've ever had to pay out of pocket for stuff, you realize that. Now, 8K is probably still too high. In fact, um, I was shocked at how, like, you pay for the operating room by the minute, which is crazy. Um, but regardless, uh, you know, the system's not a free market at all. Um, and one way you can look at that and see that is through some, there are some medical procedures that aren't covered by healthcare. And you can see how their price has changed in relation um, to other prices for things that are covered. And you can see how the, the government involvement in the health insurance industry has bloated prices. So as an example, um, we can look at an appendectomy, like a laparoscopic appendectomy, which is very common, versus something like LASIK. Appendectomies are covered, LASIK isn't. In 1998, LASIK cost about 2,500 bucks for, per eye. Um, it still costs, I think, about 2,500 bucks per eye. Uh, but because of inflation, that's really like 550 bucks or a thousand bucks in 1998 dollars. <laughs> Like it's not, it doesn't cost the same. It costs the same in numbers, but it doesn't really cost the same in real dollars. It's gone down. And there's a whole bunch of other options. Uh, you can, like PRK and there's LASIK and all this other stuff, similar costs. So if you wanna get your eyes corrected, uh, the it's not even the completely free market, but the freer market has, maintained pretty good prices while inflation has gone up their prices in this day and tech's gotten better more options not so bad meanwhile an appendectomy um i think it's the opposite you've, you've seen you've seen the price increase we just showed you the chart and that was only from that chart was only from 2007 i think it, you know, it was even lower before then when i you know general that appendectomy fits in that general healthcare cost i think right so that's that price has gone up i did look just for just for the sake of Dill McRelish Pickleford, I did try and look up, because you know, I I made the sacrifice. Um, I made the sacrifice here and I wanted to look up the price of, of breast augmentation surgery and what's happened. And I Googled breasts all day long. I mean, I really, I put some effort into it and you know, the results are inconclusive. I'm gonna have to keep researching. Uh, but from what I can tell, uh, there's actually not a lot of, um, in all seriousness, there's not actually a lot of data on that. I can't find it. Um, but from what I can tell, the cost hasn't really changed much since 1990. Um, and there's been a significant rise in demand. So I'm not, I'm not I, I can't totally tell, but I don't think, I don't think that surgery has, has suffered the same rise in healthcare costs that like an appendectomy or anything else has. Because uh, it also is outside, just like LASIK, it's out, outside the, for the most part, it's outside the insurance system. So look, if you love the DMV, like I said, you'll love government healthcare. So that's the answer. Dill, Mick, Relish, Bickleford. Uh, that, that's, that's the answer. Yeah. Why does it seem, it seems effed up. Of course it does. I can't believe that you even say that. Of course it seems effed up. It is effed up. Uh, 
And a note to people who live in places with socialized medicine, who who are usually super obnoxious on this subject, um, and they're like, it's great here. It's like, yeah, I don't know. I talked to people who had like serious problems and uh, had to leave because the wait list was too long to get real health care because they were going to die. So maybe you, if you scrape your knee, it works pretty well for now, which we'll get to. But like, I, it's not actually, stop saying it's awesome. It's not. It's not awesome because there's like people need to leave. People leave Canada to come to the U.S. to get cancer treatment because they can't wait on the waiting list. So don't pretend like you can't just ignore those deaths and be like, oh, it's great here. No, it's not great there. This is why people travel to free, but sometimes they go to Asia because there's parts of Asia where there's like less regulation and there's cheaper health care in Asia or whatever. I mean, there's probably also parts where it's subsidized, but um Look at Alfie Evans. Go tell Alfie Evans' parents in the UK that socialized healthcare is great. I don't know if you remember that story. He's a kid. He was like under two years old. Now, granted, the doctors may have been right about this, but that's not the that's not the point. He was like brain dead, basically. They wanted to take their baby, their little baby boy, who who was was being on life support. They wanted to take him out of the country on their own dime, they wanted to take him out of the country and see if doctors somewhere else could do something. Now, the doctors in the UK said, no, they can't, blah, blah, blah. Maybe they're right. I, it, it looks like they probably were right. Probably he couldn't be saved and he was already had enough, you know, brain damage or whatever that it, he, he was irrecoverable, right? But that's not the point. The point is they weren't allowed to. The point is the government said, no, that's socialized healthcare. You may not. We own your body. We own your son's body. Screw you. You can't go to another place. I mean, it's, that story is makes my blood boil, right? And the other thing I'll say about socialized medical systems is you are leeches. You are leeching off of the free market in terms of innovation because innovation happens in a free market and it doesn't happen as quickly. Uh, you don't have as many chances. You don't have the profit incentive. You don't get as much innovation outside of a free market. And so all you socialized countries with socialized medicine, you are leeches. You are leeching off of the free market, which is producing innovation. You couldn't exist without the innovation of a free market. You wouldn't have the things that you have without the innovation of a free And we don't even have a free market. We have a freer market in many ways. We don't even have a free market. And that transition between a free market or a freer market and socialization, you actually can last for a little bit in that because you've got, you know, it's the same as communism. When you first transition to communism, there's still grain in the silos so you can still eat. And then you run out of grain and you realize you shot all the people who know how to grow food and you're like, oh, oops. That's what happens with the same thing. I mean, it's not the exact same thing, but it's the same principle. When you, when you move from a free market in healthcare or a freer market and you socialize healthcare, you've got doctors who are trained in the free market. You've got uh, businesses that were started in the free market. You've got like, there's, there's a lag. There's a long lag before the, the reality of a kid growing up in socialized medicine, deciding to get into the medical industry and getting into the medical industry. Like that whole cycle happens. And by the time he grows up and becomes a doctor, he sucks. So... Dill, Dill, Dill says he doesn't know the solutions. Yeah, you do. You absolutely know the solutions. Free market is the solution. You don't have to be able to predict the exact mechanism. You couldn't have done that if I asked you in 1980 what cell phones were going to look like 40 years later. You wouldn't have been able to predict how they would be made and what the supply chain would be like and the complexity of the, the internet and all that. I'm like, 
Of course not. But you could easily have said, well, I know what's good for the cell phone industry. Free market. <laughs> Same thing. Right? And people will say, yeah, but healthcare is important. I agree. Healthcare is critically important, which is exactly why the government shouldn't be involved in healthcare. Eating is important. Do you want them to be feeding you? And, and grow, you want them to control the food industry? By the way, if you want to eat the bugs, vote for the government to control the food industry. You want the government to manage all farming, all the food industry, all the restaurants, all the restaurants are Taco Bell. Is that what you want? You want the food managed by the government? Food's important, right? What about love and marriage and sex? Those are important things, right? You want the government to regulate them? Do you want a sex quota? <laughs> Do you want to find a spouse by filling out a, a form with your, your government-mandated relationship insurance agency? The fact that it's important is why the government shouldn't do it. And the argument that, well, some people won't be able to afford it. Yeah, I know. That's called life. Some people afford better looking spouses than other people. Like, it's life is not, you know, life's not equal. Making everyone equal is unfair. Go read Harrison Bergeron by Kurt Vonnegut. There's only one way to make people equal. Equals unfair. You don't want equal. Stop being jealous that some billionaire can spend a billion dollars on, you know, to cryo-freeze himself if he gets stage four cancer and wait for a cure. Like, and you can't. Yeah. He can do a lot of things you can't. Who the hell cares? He's not doing it at your expense. It's not a win-lose economy. So get over yourself. And recognize that the free market is better for you and better for everyone. And first adopters, the rich in the free markets, are often first adopters. Right? They're the ones that try products that are new, maybe unstable, maybe super expensive. And if they work, the price goes down. And they can be popular and the price goes down. That's what happens. Right? When I was growing up, only wealthy people could have car phones. No one had a car phone. Now welfare recipients have iPhones. It, like it's it's ridiculous. Right, that happened because of first adopters. They would we would never be there today if the government was like, well, everyone ought to have a car phone. We should take off. We should take over the industry. You know, <laughs> would all have phones this big that are like mounted in the back seat with a cord, <laughs> and there'd be no internet. <laughs> you can't get equality and progress, and you can't get equality and justice. Those two things you can't get it. People aren't equal. You want progress, you need innovation, you need differences, you need people trying things, you need people being able to succeed and other people fail, like that's that's what you need. You want justice, you can't have equality. I don't mean equality under law, I mean like equity, right? You can't do that. So get over it. Start advocating for the free market in healthcare. Stop pretending like, I don't understand how it wouldn't work. Yes, you do. I don't, under, I don't understand what to do with healthcare. Yeah, you do. Free market. Same thing you do with everything. It's not that complicated. Stop pretending it's more complicated than that. That my, By the way, my, my, my scolding tone is directed specifically at Mr. Dill McRellish Pickleford. <laughs> not at everyone else. I'm scolding him because he knows. All right.
if there's some super chats here. Richard Pets returns with super chats. Richard Pets says, "Here's another couple bucks." Oops, wait, why isn't it on screen? Here we go. Here's a couple other bucks to your new Drop ESG effort, Carter. Oh, thank you. I will talk about that next. That's the last thing we'll do, and then we'll go. Um, G Man says, "Did you hear about the government-assisted suicides in Canada going up the last couple of years?" I haven't, but here we go. You see, this is the kind of this is the kind of winky winky wanky woo. You have examples of the NHS bad, but I have examples of it's good. Okay, it's immoral. It's bad in many cases. I'm sure it's good for some people. Sure, sure, everything's good. Look, some people do better under socialism, but as a whole, we don't. And the free market is what's necessary for innovation. And you guys in the UK are leeches. You're leeching your healthcare system. Leeches innovation. I'm sorry, and I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna. <laughs> I'm not gonna retract that. You leech innovation. That's what you do. Okay. Um, I'm gonna talk about ESG really quickly. I don't. It's this is, show has been longer than I intended. So, I mentioned this last week. Um, I mentioned this when we were not on our main channel because uh, of a ban. So, uh, I just want to quickly mention it again so that you guys can hear about it. Um, I don't know if it's worth making an evergreen video about ESG generally. I might, um, but, but like I said, I mentioned this. Um, there's a website. I'll pull it up. I started this website. This is based on uh, what you guys actually wanted. Um, we had this conversation a while ago. You guys gave me some homework to do, and I finally started doing the homework. I didn't complete it. Um, so you can go to dropesg.com um, and it will redirect to this website, which is just our, it's just our, it's a page on safe space. It will redirect to this website and we're putting together divestment letters. If you wanna divest from a company that supports ESG, um, the environmental, social and governance framework, the scores that are being pushed by World, World Economic Forum and others. Um, we've got divestment letters. You can click on one of these. It'll like, um, so we have two things. We're gonna fill out, first of all, we have a list of all the World Economic Forum companies that are participating. You can look at that list here. Right now, I'm working on taking this list uh, and making divestment letters for each specific company. So Amazon's got one. Um, I think if I click on it, you probably won't see it unless I switch the share screen. But um, here, I'll just I'll switch the share screen for a second. So if you want to divest from Amazon, you click on that link. It's got the Amazon contact information. It's got a, a letter. You just fill in these couple things. You sign it. Uh, it tells you how to email if you want um, and you can let companies know why you are divesting from them uh, and how it's related to ESG. So um, that list is under development or the, the set of letters is under development right now. Um, so as you'll see from this website, we don't have, I don't have all of them. Um, 
but uh, we're starting. And for the ones we don't have, there is a general form letter. There's a generic one you can click on here and you can fill in stuff yourself. So um, so what we're doing right now is we're working uh, in, there's a channel in our Discord. There's a, a there's a channel, a Drop ESG channel. And um, people are contributing to uh, finding contact information for the companies in the World Economic Forum so we can build out this list. Um, and this is, you know, we're looking for like investor relations contacts and that kind of stuff. So we'll put those, so we'll make special letters for each company. And we're also working on funds. So a lot of people have like 401ks or retirement, uh, other retirement uh, vehicles that are, that are in the form of funds. And they want to write their fund manager and say like, you know, divest from these companies or I want, I want these companies out of the fund or I'm dropping the fund because of these companies, whatever it is. Um, and we're going to start put those together as well for the major funds, you know, Vanguard, Fidelity, all the major, major names. We're going to start to put those together so that you can do that. And then eventually we'll expand from beyond the World Economic Forum companies to just any company that's supporting the ESG stuff overtly. Um, a lot of companies are roped into it, so we can't, you don't want to blame companies that are roped in because you can get, you can get part of the, one of the insidious things about ESG is, um, it's got a built-in mechanism for punishing companies who don't spread the ESG framework to their people that they do business with. So you don't want to rope in ones that are kind of doing it because they have to. But there are other companies that are pushing it and, and just aren't members of the World Economic Forum. So we'll get those. Um, and then my long-term plan is to actually introduce a an alternative to ESG, which is basically an anti-ESG score, um, which is uh, really more along the lines of... Um, promoting liberty and individualism, right? Uh, not doing ESG stuff. Um, so I haven't finished developing that yet. So, but that's the long-term plan. If you want to get involved in any of that, just get on our Discord server. Someone complained earlier our Discord link wasn't on our website. Uh, that is true. Um, you can only get on the Discord server if, if you are a uh, subscriber. If you're a paying subscriber, a dollar a month, you can get on the Discord server. Um, and when you do that, uh, you should get an email or contact or whatever, depending on the platform. Sometimes it's hard to reach out. Um, but you can always, if you are a paying member, you can always reach out to speak at unsafespace.com and just say like, hey, this is me. This is my ID. I, I need into the Discord server. All right. I think that's it. This is a... Uh, this is a uh, long show. It's a longer, longer than two hours, so... We should wrap it up. Uh, as a reminder, I don't see any new chat things. Microsoft is in there. Greg says Microsoft's got to be in there. I think they are on the World Economic Forum list. They're just we don't have the um, we don't have the list complete yet. Uh, so, all right. Uh, as a reminder, we are trying to do kind of like a troublesome arguments thing. So in Discord, you can say, hey, here's some arguments that I'm, I'm having trouble refuting or some arguments I'd like to make, but I'm having trouble articulating. Um, and then we try and bring him into these shows sometimes and talk about them and see if we can arrive at some kind of answer uh, or improvement in our thinking. Um, you know, that can be stuff like I'm wrong about something. That's fine. Like we'll work through that too. Um, also, people have been asking about a call-in show. I think maybe we'll try one next week if if we get enough people saying they want to participate. I don't want to do a call-in show um, if people aren't prepared for it because 
um, then it doesn't work. But if there's people that want to be in the call-in show, they want to call in, they want us to do it. It's been a couple months, I think, so it's maybe time. Uh, let us know in Discord um, or or just let us know on YouTube. You comment on YouTube, say, I want to do the call-in show. Um, and we'll do a call-in show uh, for the next Dangerous Thoughts, which is next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Pacific. So with that said, an enormous thank you to um, to all of you who have been with me through this very drama-rific uh, discussion involving asteroids and rocks and rockets and uh, old dictionaries and breasts. Uh, so, <laughs> um, let's see. Sorry, I just got to pull this up. So, yeah. Uh, thank you so much for everyone who's been here. Uh, if you want to support the show, you can, or support the channel generally, get on safespace.com, get your name in the credits, uh, with, I think it's five bucks and up, you get your name in the credits, 25 bucks and up, you get the grenade mug behind me. Um, your contribution, if you do join, does help, uh, not just this show, like I said, but, uh, all the other shows, Rebel Civics, which are earlier today, Keith, <laughs> Keith had, I'm kind of compelled, but I like his, the thumbnail says, is, is Constitution Day constitutional? Uh, the short answer to his show is, uh-uh. But, um, <laughs> so that's a good one. He does that, I think, almost every Wednesday as well, on Wednesday afternoon. Tuesdays, every other Tuesday, roughly, Alex Maselli hosts a show called 451 Degrees, which is about big tech and censorship. She talked about Twitter ban uh, yesterday. She had a Twitter ban, and actually, I think she talked about our YouTube ban as well. On Mondays, we have Narrative Dissonance with me and Juliet Dillon, and this is where we host a panel of journalists to talk about the news, but from a what are we being lied to about, what are we being misled about. We on Last Monday, we had Emma Camp from Reason Magazine. This Monday, I think we have Brian uh, McGlinchey from Stark Realities. I think he's, he's our guest this Monday. Um, and then Thursdays, tomorrow, we've got Pop Culture. A pop culture show called Token Minority Report with Beverly and Alex. So if, if you are a pop culture aficionado or you just watch a lot of Netflix, way more than I do, uh, join them for that. Also, roughly once a month, we do book club. The next book club is this Sunday, October 2nd at, I think it's noon Eastern. Uh, it's on our website. I think it's noon Eastern. Um, the book is Satanic, The Satanic Verses by Salman Rushdie. That's hosted by me and Alex. And then one after that is August 30th, which is hosted by Juliet, and that's Slaughterhouse Five by Kurt Vonnegut. Um, I mentioned Harrison Bergeron earlier. Another Kurt, Kurt Vonnegut. Uh, that one's a short story. Slaughterhouse Five is not a hugely difficult or intense book either. So um, the Satanic Verses is probably a little bit late to start, unless you're going to do nothing but read between now and Sunday. But if you want to join, uh, please do. Um, you don't have to have read it. And the October 30th, he got plenty of time to read Slaughterhouse Five before then. So. Thanks again, everyone. Have a great evening, and I will see you next time. Take care. Thanks for sticking around until the end. If you're new to Unsafe Space, check out our deep content library that includes discussions with everyone from James Lindsay to Brett Weinstein. And please consider helping to fund our work by visiting unsafespace.com slash donate. You can find us on a variety of social media platforms, and you can find a community of like-minded individuals on our Unsafe Space Discord server, which is open to financial supporters at any level. 
We hope to see you there. Warning, this is an unsafe space. Dangerous ideas have been detected. It would be better for your health if you forgot what you just heard. That should be easy for someone of your intelligence. The following co-conspirators are hereby ordered to watch CNN. Experts agree that 87,000 new tax collectors will make inflation feel like less of a problem. I think we can agree that the FBI's track record speaks for itself. If you think about it, only government-sanctioned experts should be allowed to express opinions. But don't. Think about it, I mean. That's not your job. Thinking has been scientifically proven to be less efficient than compliance. Science, scientific and scientifically are registered trademarks of the World Economic Forum. Unauthorized use is prohibited. Computer voice Curtis Never mind, that last line is fake news. Please disregard it and return to your safe space immediately. There will be cake.